This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that you that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is no none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but post herds, among potsheds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, The potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, What have you begotten? Or to a mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says. The Holy One of Israel and its Maker, concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children, or give me orders above the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. So yes, uh, yeah, thank you for having me. It's really lovely to be here. Um, and we're looking at Isaiah 45. Of course, always helpful to have that open in front of you as we work through the passage. Um, so the question that I think this text um, answers for us is, uh, why Cyrus? So why Cyrus is the question that we'll be answering from the text today. And why that uh, is an important question for us to ask, even though we're a distance from that current situation, um, is because Cyrus is presented here as like a salvation figure. Um, you'll see that in a minute. Uh, someone who's appointed by God, anointed by God, called the shepherd of God, um, and yet he had really nothing to do with Israel. He was the rule of the Persian Empire, the great world power at the time. And frankly, it's anathema to the Jewish people to have Cyrus talked about in these terms. So it raises the question, God, why are you using Cyrus as a salvation figure? Um, especially when the Bible up until this point has been talking for centuries, over a thousand years, about salvation figures chosen from within Israel, prophets raised up, um, you know, priests raised up, kings particularly raised up um, to lead people into this blessed relationship under God. So what's Cyrus got to do with all this? It's anathema. Just imagine Jacinda Ardern and uh, the New Zealanders deciding, looking over and seeing all our sheep and going, we want Australia. 
invading us, taking over our country and Jacinda becoming our new Prime Minister. It would just seem absurd, right? And as distasteful to us, but mainly absurd, like that's never going to happen. And that's also a lay here that's going on. Like, not only is this an unusual choice by God, it's something that you just cannot imagine happening, considering who the great Cyrus is. But look at how Cyrus is described here through the words of the prophet Isaiah by God. So reading from Isaiah 44, verse 27, Isaiah says, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I will accomplish all that I please? He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, and to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him, so that gates shall not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. So at this point in... Uh, the history of God's people. They're in Babylon. They've been exiled there, punished for their faithlessness. And here God is saying, I will use the great Cyrus of the Persian Empire to rescue my people, to bring them back home. It says here that Cyrus will command the rebuilding of the temple. It says here that Cyrus will command that God's people return to Jerusalem. It says here that Cyrus is my shepherd. He is my anointed one a title only reserved for kings and other special people up until that point, special leaders appointed by God. So it's an incredible picture that we have here. And the question is, why? Why would you use someone who's a pagan? And how is this possibly going to happen, God? God's people worship him, but is he really this powerful? Is he really this strong? Is he really in this control of all that happens? Why Cyrus? Well, first of all, in this passage, it makes it clear that God chooses Cyrus because all of the nations serve God's salvation plan. All of the nations serve God's salvation plan, whether they acknowledge it or not. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 45. For the sake of Jacob, that is Israel, God's people, stuck in Babylon, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, that is Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, Cyrus, though you have not acknowledged me. So it makes two things clear there, right? That number one, Cyrus doesn't acknowledge God. It says it twice. 
that Cyrus doesn't acknowledge God. He doesn't believe in the God of the Jews. He has no deference towards him. He certainly doesn't worship him. He doesn't even acknowledge him. And yet God is saying here, I will strengthen you, the great leader of the world power of the time. God says, I will strengthen you and will use you to be my servant, to save my people, Jacob, Israel, and bring them home. Why Cyrus? Because all the nations serve God's salvation plan. And all the nations serve God's salvation plan because all of creation, the whole cosmos, is here for this very purpose. It's all a stage to put the spotlight on God's salvation of his people in history through time. Verse 7 and verse 8. I form the light and create darkness through the words of the prophet Isaiah God speaks. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness Flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. See how it speaks, how it describes creation, how it describes the world. It says there, right? You heavens rain down what? You heavens rain down my righteousness. And what does he say? To the earth, let the earth open wide and let what spring up? Let the earth open wide and what shall spring up? Salvation. Do you see the picture? All of creation is here for God's salvation plan to be highlighted. It exists for the purpose of serving God's salvation plan. It's a stage for God's salvation plan. Let the water let the rain pour down, and what's going to sprout up and grow? Salvation. That's what everything is here for. So it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that all the nations, therefore, serve God's salvation plan. Everything exists for the purpose of God's purposes in the gospel. Listen to how this worldview is reflected or observe how this worldview is reflected. That's, this foundation is laid very clearly and heavily in the Old Testament. See, see how it works out in the New Testament and how the New Testament speaks. Acts chapter 17. It says in Acts chapter 17, From one man God made all the nations. Why? That they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. What a remarkable statement. The author of Acts 
writing, can't you see that all people everywhere have been put there by God that they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. All the nations serve God's salvation plan. They're here for the sake of the gospel. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2. See how this worldview is reflected there. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So how does the argument go? Pray for all of those who are in authority um, over you, for, for governors, for rulers, for you know, prime ministers, premiers, presidents. Pray for all these people. Why? So that we may live quiet and godly lives. Why? Because God wants all people to come to salvation. He wants the church to be left alone that it may get on with its business and flourish and even be helped by governing authorities, that that witness would have maximum impact, that it would be most effective. That's why we're praying primarily for rulers over us. Romans chapter 9, see how this worldview is reflected again. Now this is a, a heavy passage in Romans chapter 9 and it's talking about um, how is it fair um, that if God chooses some people to be saved, how is it fair that some are not chosen? And so it's a tricky passage and one that raises lots of questions. But the point I just want to reflect on here from this little snippet is that even those who are not being saved according to God have something to do with his salvation plan. Listen to what it says, Romans chapter 9, verse 22 to 23. Paul says, what if God, talking about those who are not chosen for salvation, what if God, although choosing to show, sorry, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. So Paul is speculating here. He's not actually quite sure why God doesn't choose some people. But what he is sure of is that no one escapes his attention, that it's all intentional, that it's all a part of his gospel salvation plan. He says, well, what if... The reason why some are not chosen for salvation is to demonstrate that it really is by mercy and grace that we're saved. What if it's to demonstrate to those of us who've been shown grace and mercy that it really is by God's grace and mercy that we're saved and thus it brings glory to him and really shows his glory to us. What if that's what's going on? Again, might raise lots of questions, but the point is that everyone is here. All nations exist. All creation exists 
as a stage for God's salvation plan. And this changes our worldview. I like going to musicals. Um, I think the last musical I went to with the family was Matilda. And, uh, you know, we go there and it's a fun night out and it's a big palaver, isn't it? You go down there, it was at the Princess uh, Theatre um, and it's got this lovely building, nice foyer, lots of bars, all the people are there. There are attendants, ushers, there are people at the bar, people serving choc top, choc tops. You go into the, uh, you know, upstairs uh, to where we were in our seat um, and we're ushered in and uh, we're, we're put in our seat and the lights dim and everyone goes quiet and the curtains draw back, the spotlight goes on and there's Matilda. Uh, and all of this stuff that's going on, all this hubbub, um, all this palaver, the, the printing of the programs, uh, the catering, um, the rehearsals, the stage production, the lighting, the advertising, all of this stuff, the building itself, all of this stuff right there at that moment is for the sake of that one person, Matilda. It's really clear that this is what it's all here for, what it's all about. It's all designed to spotlight Matilda. And that is what God is saying about the gospel and his salvation plan. That's why Cyrus, because even Cyrus, who does not acknowledge God and who seems so powerful, he could not possibly come in under the lordship of Christ. God is demonstrating here in Isaiah, yes, even Cyrus. Everything and everyone, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Anthony Albanese, they're all in under this salvation plan, God's lordship. They're actually all here for that sake, whether they acknowledge God or not. Most, most don't, but they're nonetheless here for that purpose and that sake. And why Cyrus finally... Isaiah 45, verse 6, So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Just last night, just last night I was talking to my son, I actually asked if he wanted to come here today with me um, and I thought he might want to come because he's at the age now where he can't go to Sunday school and he's got to be in the main service and he finds it a bit boring. I thought, well, it might be good to go somewhere different and he said, yeah, I might come down. I'll see how I feel in the morning but this morning, of course, he was on his iPad and in his pyjamas so it wasn't going to happen but uh, we, were, we were talking about this passage um, and I said, it's remarkable, you know, um, Isaiah. Tomorrow I'm talking about this guy Cyrus and it was prophesied that Cyrus would be the deliverer of God's people. We know this historically. It was prophesied that it would happen before it happened. There's an even more remarkable prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, which you're probably very familiar with, very famous. And yes, there are other theories about who Isaiah 53 is talking about other than Jesus Christ, but I tell you, there is no one really who fits Isaiah 53 like Jesus Christ. And this happened 700 years before Jesus came. 
Incredible insight. How could Isaiah predict that the linchpin of salvation, in salvation for God's people, was a suffering servant who would die, it says in Isaiah 53, when all the expectations were pointing towards a conquering king? And Isaiah brings all those threads together in this prophecy 700 years before it happens. And I was saying to my son, it's incredible, you know. There are so many signs, so many evidences that God is real, that God has saved us. And he said to me, Dad, why doesn't God just do miracles today? Why doesn't God just shop today and make it so clear that no one is without any excuse it's a common question and i said to him what i say to uni students when i ask this question well what did they do to jesus christ when he turned up performing miracles when he acted in a way and performed miracles that put it beyond dispute that he was the very least a prophet from god if not the messiah what did they do to him his own people, what did they do to him? Well, they crucified him. And what does Jesus say? If they do not repent at the testimony of Moses, they won't repent at my miracles. It's not evidence that's a problem here, it's the human heart. And God hasn't just done this with Cyrus. He's done this with all the promises given to the Jewish people that have come to fruition. Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, made into a great nation. Abraham, you'll go and be in Egypt for 400 years and then I'll bring you out and bring you to the promised land. And it happened. I will give you a temple. They got a temple. I will give you a king. They got a king. I will send you into exile if you disobey me. And they go into exile. Then they're brought back because he promised that he'd bring them back. And he says, I will give you a Messiah, a king who will live forever on the throne of David. He will live forever. We can scarcely believe this promise. And it happened. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again. The church happened. The church is one of the most profound mysteries historically. How could the church flourish like it did when in the first century it was seen as an obscure and abhorrent Jewish sect? We've been given plenty of signs, and that's what it says here. Why Cyrus? So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. What did... What did Cyrus do after he was moved by God, petitioned by God? Did he turn and repent? No, he didn't turn and repent. What did people do in the first century when Jesus rose from the dead? Did all the Jews turn and repent? No, they didn't. Why don't people acknowledge God today? Because of lack of evidence? No, because we're innately hard-hearted. We're actually sinful. And yet there's plenty of evidence, there's plenty of sign that God is real, he is there, he cares, 
and his salvation purposes are at the center of creation and all the nations are here, that they might reach out for him and find him. Um, so what? Just some concluding observations, implications from this passage before us today. So what? Well, two things um, I'd like to reflect upon. The first one is a tangential kind of application implication. That is, are you a disciple before you're a disciple maker? It's sobering, isn't it, that someone who never acknowledges God is used by God to affect God's salvation plan. And this is echoed in the New Testament. Do you remember that passage? I think it's in Philippians when Paul is talking about people who preach the gospel out of impure motives, not because they want people particularly to be saved, but because they want to stir up trouble. He says they're preaching the gospel but with impure motives. But then he goes on to say, but you know what? What does it matter? As long as they're preaching the gospel, what does it matter? Because the gospel is powerful and effective for salvation. All I'm really worried about is the gospel is preached. It's not good that they're doing that. It's not good for them. They may not be saved, but at least other people will be saved through their preaching, and that's the most important thing. And my friends, that's, that's possible for any one of us. To be a churchian rather than a Christian. To have just enough religion, just enough Christianity to make us feel connected to God. Just enough religion to make us feel like we've got an ethical, moral backbone. Just enough Christianity to make us feel like we're justified before God if he's there, if he's real. Just enough Christianity to give our life a meaning it otherwise would not have. A sprinkling of Christianity, subscribing to churchianity, is not the same as getting that the gospel is the centre of absolutely everything. It's possible to be a servant in the church, to be a participant in the church, and to therefore be caught up in God's salvation work and you not be a Christian. Are you a disciple before you're a disciple maker? It's much, much more important that you and I, I know God before I tell other people about him. I have a relationship with God before I try and encourage other people in their relationship with God. And finally, the second point is, does this worldview reflect your worldview? Or does your worldview rather reflect this worldview? Does your life look like the centre of absolutely everything is the gospel? Now, this is a tough one. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, right? It says, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 15, now it's talking there to all Christians in 1 Corinthians 15, it's saying to all Christians, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. 
And in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, it's also clear that what that is talking about is the ministry of word and prayer. And so it raises the question, if Paul says to all Christians everywhere, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, but not all of us can be set apart for the ministry of the word and prayer, then what does he mean? And what he means is make the gospel, whether you are set apart full-time for the ministry of word and prayer, or whether you're a teacher or a full-time mum or whatever, make the gospel your passion. Make it your heartbeat. But Stu, how do I give myself fully to the work of the Lord? Well, I suppose the answer is something like how long is a piece of string? It's, you cannot quite quantify it. That's why no quantity, no measure, no three-step plan is ever given for the Christian to describe how you give yourself fully to the work. But what I say is make this your passion. Roll up your sleeves and give all your energy, all your heart, all your might, all your mind to building up and loving the body of Christ. Perhaps it's easier to say what it doesn't mean, and this is to my first point. Surely it cannot mean just turn up on Sunday, just go to your growth group, maybe give 10% at best, pray once or twice a week. It can't mean that, right? It can't. We've got many more resources than that. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And sometimes I think that the way that we are committed to church and to the body of Christ reflects the secular worldview rather than the Christian worldview. You know, to be honest with you, walking into this building here and in my church as well on a Sunday, and when I turn up to the main meeting of the Christian group on campus, it doesn't feel like the most relevant meeting of the week. This doesn't feel, does it, like the most relevant community, the most relevant building in this suburb, does it? So much is going on around us that seems so much more impressive, so much more important. The local footy club. I'm involved with the local footy club down in Cheltenham where I go to church at Mentone Baptist. And there are so many more people connected in with the local footy club. It is truly the hub of our community, I would say, down in Mentone. What goes on there feels like it matters. All the local sponsors plastered up around the club rooms, every Tom, Dick and Harry that you see walking down the street, they're all somehow connected to the footy club. It's not the case for Mentone Church. And so people give their heart and soul to those kind of community groups because they see the relevance. And here God is trying to help us see the relevance of the local church. God is saying actually the only thing with relevance is the church. There will come a day, not too far from now, when everything will waste away. Everything will wither like the grass of the fields and the flower of the fields and all that will be left standing is the body of Christ, the church of God for eternity. It is the most, it is the only relevant, ultimately, community in this suburb. Give yourself fully to it. Amen. Dear God, we thank you for your gospel, your good news. 
We thank you that uh, the center of creation, we thank you that the purpose of all the nations is that we might come into relationship with you. That is such a glorious, wonderful hope because you're a powerful God and you're a loving God and a God who delights to bless us and give us life. God, help us to reflect in our own lives the worldview here in Isaiah 45. Help our lives to reflect that everything revolves around your salvation plan. In your son's name. Amen.